Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. All right, let's talk about Ursula Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness. This is a very unusual book, very different. Today I wanted to talk just about the premise, because I suppose I'm hoping that you all read about half of it, so you got about halfway through. And then you'll finish it by the time we meet on Tuesday. So the real value in starting it today is the premise, talking about what the whole idea of the book is about. What, what is the, what is the underlying idea that she's trying to convey, and why should we be concerned about it? What do you think? By the way, did many people read the introduction, <coughs> where she talks about herself? I, I did. It got a little thick. It got a little thick, yeah? <coughs> what do you think about it? <coughs> what was odd about that? Well, I mean, she was kind of saying that, you know, everything someone writes has a double meaning, and that science fiction writers don't necessarily try to predict the future, they try to give you more details about the present and then you know just sort of exaggerate what's already here as opposed to predicting the future but what does she say about their predictions uh, scientific science fiction predictions what do they tend to be well let's let's look at the first page of oh, the yeah she said that it, you end up somewhere between extinction of human liberty and total extinction of terrestrial life. Yeah, yeah. That science. Some people, she says, don't like it. science fiction because they think it's depressing because it's always the end of the world or the end of liberty or the end of or end of something. And uh, I guess I I strongly disagree with that. There is some science fiction that's like that, but I've I've never heard of someone who is enjoying science fiction to think of it as depressing. They always thought of it as the reality that we live in is depressing and science fiction is the one that shows us what's going wrong with the reality. But the issue of extrapolation, whether we're just supposed to extrapolate into the future with science fiction is interesting. Clearly that's not that's not something she really favors. How much of that is going on here? How much of this is extrapolation, do you think? Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting because she leaves out a lot of, like, a lot of stuff where she could go into, you know, like, technological science fiction. Like, she completely ignores, you know, what makes the Ansible work. And she completely ignores, like, his ship. I mean, other than saying that they like took it apart and looked at it, like she completely ignores the entire outer galaxy. She only focuses on the planet, and so it's less, you know, predictive of future technological leaps than it is more like a social thing. Yeah, and you know that's not unlike the Foundation trilogy in some sense because the Isaac Asimov in the Foundation trilogy really focused on the concept of psychohistory. He didn't focus so much on 
how the star drives work, how the time issues were overcome. Now, on the other hand, when we deal with a lot of science fiction writers, which we will do in the future, you know, later on in the course, that happen to also be physicists, they deal with a lot of physics concepts as well. What happens when you encounter time in a certain way, what happens when you encounter physics in a certain way, and all types of interesting things come out of that. But very much in the Asimov tradition, Ursula Le Guin is talking about the social issues of it. Even if you look at some of Asimov's robot books, he doesn't so much talk about how the positronic brain works, how the actual robots are made to be able to think. He talks about the conflicts that occur between the three laws of robotics, the social stuff that happens in between them and the, the, the interactions between the three laws of robotics and, and human society, and each one, each time trying to puzzle out how does the three laws of robotics interact with situations that occur in when robots are interacting with humans. Okay, so what we have here is a social commentary. And it's not extrapolative. So she's not, Ursula Le Guin is not trying to say we're all going to live in an androgynous society where people are both male and female and that they change roles from time to time depending on circumstances and needs, much like a frog can sometimes do. Some certain frogs, and there's nothing in the novel that's really pointing at the end of civilization, human liberty, and things like that. It's not such. A, it's not a novel where it's meant to be depressing, in her sense. Okay, we can take that. But then what? What is she really talking about? What is something in this introduction? Why deal with the novel in the first place? If it's not extrapolative, and it's not showing, trying to show the problems of society in an extreme fashion so that it really accents the problems of society, what is she trying to do? In fact, some of the stuff that she says is she's saying the science fiction writers are liars. They come up with lies, myths, misunderstanding, misuntruths, and they they put them together into a story. And while you're reading the story, the story means seems more real than the actual reality. For a while, you believe everything. So, what is the purpose then of spinning these lies, as she would call them? I mean, she says on... Let me see. Let's go into the introduction. Actually, this <coughs> doesn't have a page number on the introduction. So this is the uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, six page into the introduction. Yes, indeed, the people in it are androgynous. But that doesn't mean... <coughs> I'm predicting that in mil millennium or so we will all be androgynous. Or announcing that I think... We damned well ought to be androgynous. I am merely observing in peculiar, devious, and thought experiment in, in thought experimental manner proper to science fiction that if you look at us at a certain odd times of day in certain weathers, we already are. I am not predicting or prescribing. I am describing. I am describing certain aspects of psychological reality in the novelist's way, 
which is by inventing elaborately circumstantial lies. Well, why would she want to make these lies then? Was to make you sit up and look at, the, like, just look at the world. Like the novelist, she says, tells lies. They're not there to like, tell you what the future. Is. They're there to say, sit up, look, listen. There's the whole world going on around you. So taking notice of it. I think yeah. The very next mm-hmm. paragraph, she talks about how. I mean, if you if you read a novel and you change even a little bit after you've read it. I mean, just looking at the world in a new way or realizing something else. I mean, that's I think that's the aim of every novelist. They don't want you to read, your, read their novel and just forget about it right the moment you finish it. But yeah. actually, like, think about it, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whatever. There's some level of change. So in a sense, she's an activist. If you look at it from that perspective, those are two very good points. Finally, when we're done with it, with the novel, of course we may find if it's a good novel that we're a bit different from that from what we were before we read it that we've been changed a little as if by having met a new face crossed a street we never crossed before so she's really talking about changing people but why science fiction why are we seduced into diving into this world of genly eye that would make it relevant for us in political science to want to study her. She's now admitting that her purpose is not to extrapolate but to change the here and now. Well, I mean, part of it may be to talk about, you know, people are androgynous, how does that change their interactions? And how does the fact that in, you know, society today we like we're trying to minimize the distinction between men and women in the workplace and in business and stuff like that, how how does that alter or how does that change the way people interact? Hmm. When there's no, you know, male versus female, there's no there aren't jobs that are there are jobs that people think are specifically for men or jobs that people think are specifically for women. And, you know, when even the king can become pregnant, mm-hmm. it just, it's kind of like, you know, what's a world like without sexual differences? Hmm. A world without sexual gender differences. A what-if situation. What about this last paragraph in the introduction? If I could have said it non-metaphorically, I would not have written all of these words, this novel. And generally, I would never, the character in the novel, would never have sat down at my desk and used up my ink and typewriter ribbon in informing me and you rather solemnly that the truth is a matter of the imagination. What is she saying here now? I think maybe she's saying that no matter what, people are going to believe what they want to believe, whether it's the truth or not. I mean, the truth is all in your head. If you sit there and give someone a fact, but they still don't want to believe it, they're not going to. People are stubborn. You can't make them (coughs) believe things that they don't want to see. Interesting that people 
are not going to believe something they don't want to see. What else? What else do you think? Okay, that's. I think that's that's getting at it. But what else is she? What else is she saying? Is she saying anything more profound? Anything more important that might relate to us in in the study of politics, actually from a political philosophy perspective? Some things have two meanings. Some things have two meanings. Is that what you said? Things have to be explained in a metaphor because it's impossible to get like talk about it in a real world example. Hmm. So it's impossible to get it in a real way. Well, let's let's look at this at this paragraph beforehand then. All fiction is metaphor. Science fiction is metaphor. What sets it apart from older forms of fiction seems to be its use of new metaphors, drawn from certain great dominance in our contemporary life. Science, all the sciences, the technol and technology, and the relativistic and historical outlook among them. Space travel is one of these metaphors, so it is an alternate society, an alternate biology. The future is another. The future, in fiction, is a metaphor. What is a metaphor? Something that stands for something else. Well, let me throw a new element in and talk about someone that we occasionally talk about with regard to political philosophy. Wittgenstein, Ludwig, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein is someone you may actually encounter in your studies with, say, Bob Bartlett or Judd Owens. The issue with political philosophy, political theory, with regards to Wittgenstein, is a focus on the idea of language games. When we have language games, and this actually goes to general philosophical circles, uh, especially with the study of phenomenology, a la Husserl. He's a, he's a philosopher. The idea that we may not always be able to communicate exact meaning. We may not be able to understand the world as we really think we understand it and to tell somebody else. Now, you hear me talking and I hear you talking. So you're saying, well, we're all talking, we're communicating. But what Wittgenstein would say is, no, we're not really communicating direct language. Or as Husserl would say, we're not really talking about original knowledge. What we're doing is we're having it go through various filters. And so what we have is a map in our mind. We have an original understanding of meaning, and then that meaning gets translated through words, and those words have particularistic meanings to us. And it's like a maze, and by the time you get out of the maze and you utter the words, you're no longer dealing with original perception or original understanding. What you're dealing with is an interpretation of that high-level information coming out. For example, we now know that there was a recent article by Susan Blakesley, who's a science writer for the New York Times, that our brain, uh, it was a recent article on uh, neurological functioning of, of perception 
and understanding language. And we now know that our brain has ten times the amount of circuitry dedicated to processing information as it does to inputting raw information. So when you see something and you look at it, you're getting some images that are going into the eye and then going into the brain. That images, those perceptions, go into the brain and get processed. It doesn't, brain doesn't automatically recognize as, ah, this is a table, these are my glasses, this is a tape recorder, these are my students, this is a classroom. It doesn't recognize that. What the brain does is put pieces together and interprets, comes up with an interpretation of what this is. And then it interprets and sends down with ten times the number of neuron, neuron, neuronic circuits going back down. It, ten, it feeds back into the, brain, into the rest of the brain, into consciousness, what is really going on. And so you're actually getting very little original perception with when you look at me, <coughs> at me or the table or the classroom. What you're getting is a processed thing. And we knew this because with the studies, the neurology studies, people see different things. Meaning, people can see one thing, but they swear they saw something else. And what's actually happening is the brain is making interpretation mistakes, and you actually think you saw something and you didn't see it. I mean, it's as clear as day in your mind, you saw it, but in fact it didn't happen. What happened is the brain is interpreting things and sending down these coherent total images with all the ands, buts, and ifs, all the periods, the dots on the eyes, everything's put together. That's processed information to make it a coherent understanding of a picture. Well, what Wittgenstein then is saying is that you cannot understand the original perception unless you follow the map all the way back to its original beginning and look at the original perception. And nobody does that. So it is really impossible for one person to convey information <coughs> totally, truthfully, and accurately to another person because it's going through these filters. Go ahead. Well, that just sounds a lot like, um, I think it might have been Hobbes and Leviathan who said that, you know, if you start with the fundamental, it's like geometry, if you start out with a certain set of precepts and then you can build on them as long as everyone believes in the same fun fundamental precepts. And then, you know, you can convey those to other people. But in the beginning of Leviathan, he set his own definitions for different words so that when he later on talked about them, people understood what he was talking about. It would make internal cohesive, uh, it would make internal consistency possible yeah. within his worldview. And you had to buy into that as much as yeah. possible in order to make it, to make it consistent. Yeah. That's a good way of thinking about it. That's an avenue towards it. It's actually very relevant to discussions of democracy that are going on right now. I mean, we've had elections now in a whole bunch of places. The Muslim Brotherhood is rising in Egypt. We've got Hamas in in uh, the, in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. We have radical clerics on the rise in Iraq. We've got elections with radicalism in Iran. So one of the people that are saying, one of the things that people are saying is, well, you've had elections, but what the results of those elections are is you have widespread radicalism within Islam. 
Well, when George Bush and Dick Cheney were originally pushing this election business, what were they thinking? Just think about what they were thinking about. Remember he was talking about... when They, they were talking about the idea of freedom and elections and people needing to get used to working with each other in elections. It sounded very much like Connecticut, didn't it? I mean, it's the idea of people just voting and coming up with ideas and sharing them and calmly casting ballots and saying, oh, shucks, well, you won. That's all right. <laughs> okay, well, we'll try next time. On, on like an like even more fundamental level, I mean, they keep talking about how they want, you know, democracy spreading. And the thing is, the U.S. isn't even a democracy. Are we a republic? And I mean, like, democracy is fundamentally mob rule. At least that's the way I've always had it or heard it explained. I mean, basically, it's just, you know, the greatest number of people, it's you know, it's a one-to-one election system. The greatest number of people get together, they vote, and, you know, it's basically the mob rules. Well, that's called majority rule. Is that different than democracy? Absolutely. We have a republic, for example. Right. Now, if you look at the founding fathers, I think you raised some really good questions here. So let's just talk about this for a second, because this is a perception. This is a perception that, actually, your perception probably was very parallel to George Bush and Dick Cheney's let people vote, and they'll sort it out. And it may be mob rule, but that's how you get into democracy. Well, is that really what democracy is all about? Let's look at our country. We call ourselves one of the great democracies, going back to the very beginning of our founding fathers. But did our founding fathers understand and accept democracy as we think of democracy? They hated the idea. Why would you say they hated it? It's a good idea. You're right, but why? Um... They hated it because I thought, I, well, the reason I thought that democracy was mob rule is because I thought to them it was. I thought in their minds democracy meant that you had, you know, a mob of people who would get together, who would vote, and who would put one person into power, and then that, you know, and that person could decide, you know, the fate of the nation. And I thought it sounded like, I thought to them mm-hmm. it sounded too much like monarchy. Well, that's were. installing a philosopher king, and it is a little bit like monarchy. But that's not really what modern democracy is all about. Let's let's look at our country. That's actually a Hamiltonian view, Alexander Hamilton, who was actually shot by Aaron Burr right in front of my house in Weehawken, New Jersey, when I where I grew up. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Pardon me. That's pretty cool. That's interesting. Yeah, I. I Were they over his wife? Someone's wife. Was hadn't, that? hadn't one of them slept with someone else's wife, and they got into a duel. It was a duel. I don't know actually. Yeah, I, I don't know why they got into a duel. Well, I mean, one of them, one of them was famous for dueling. I can't, I, I can't. One of them was, one. I think Aaron Burr had been in exile, or had gone over to Europe, and then had come back, and then he'd gotten into some romantic entanglement with Alexander Hamilton's wife, I believe, oh and then gosh. Alexander Hamilton shot him in a duel. No, actually, Alexander Hamilton died. Died. I'm sorry, Alexander Hamilton died in the duel, but I think it had something to do yeah. with one uh, of the Interesting, Aaron before. Burr went back to serve in the Senate right after that. So it was odds. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about Dick Cheney shooting somebody <laughs> and still being <laughs> vice president. Well, Aaron Burr went back to the Senate. Well, actually, what, what we have here is a situation in the Founding Fathers' Day. They didn't believe in democracy as we understand it very much at all. You had only white land-owning elite could vote. That means you couldn't be, not only could people of color not vote, but women couldn't vote. Males who were land-owning, that's it. 
Now, that means if you were a, a white worker, someone who worked for a living, you couldn't vote there either. So it was really only the very, very top echelon of society that was ever intended to participate. And then, how did they participate? Well, if you think about it, they participated by voting in state legislators. Those state legislators picked senators, and the Senate was appointed. You see, it wasn't directly elected back in those days. The House of Representatives was appointed, I mean, I'm sorry, was elected. It was the only directly elected body, but you could only vote for the House of Representatives if you were a white, land-owning, a state male, a state-owning male. And then the president was elected by who? The Senate. Was that? Wasn't it the Senate? The Electoral College, remember? The Electoral College. And the Electoral College was appointed by who? You know, the Electoral College was appointed by the state legislatures. Yeah. So we had the state legislatures appointing not only the Senate, but also the Electoral College, who then appointed the president. So we had an appointed presidency, an appointed Senate, and what about the Supreme Court? Appointed president. What's that? President appoints. The president appoints, and then the, the, the Senate, an appointed body, confirms them. The only place where you got any elections that were real was the House of Representatives, and they couldn't pass any bill unless it was also passed by an appointed Senate, signed by an appointed president, and okayed by an appointed Supreme Court. (laughs) So you can see how many buffers there were. In addition, if you look at Federalist 10, which was written by Madison, which was the propaganda papers for selling the Constitution in the first place, if you look at those, those are hard reading. You know television commercials back in those days were like the Federalist Papers, which tells you that the people who were the, the targets for those commercials, the Federalist Papers, were very highly educated. So it's totally different from the democracy that we have now where you aim buckshot, pardon the, the, the connection with Jane, but aim buckshot at the masses with regard to television commercials. And you try to get however many votes you can by scaring people, rock and rolling them, doing whatever you need. In the old days, you have very dense verse, very dense prose delivered to their doorstep, and they read it, and they solemnly think about all of your thoughts. Well, anyway, Federalist 10 by Madison argued against factions. There were no political parties. They were desperately afraid that the, the policy... <coughs> that the body politics would not be divided up into factions. They wanted unanimous rule. And how did they start out? The Constitution had to be accepted by everybody, all 13 states. Everybody had to go along with it. And it was supposed to be a gentleman's agreement, especially in the Senate. Rabble-rousers maybe might be able to talk a little bit in the House, but in the Senate, even a single senator could filibuster and talk (laughs) stop things. A gentleman's agreement. Well, they soon found out, once they got into functioning democracy, that the lack of factions didn't work. People just didn't like each other so much, and there was a Jeffersonian branch and a Hamiltonian branch, and some people looked at each other as quite in quite hostile terms, and they started breaking up into factions themselves. Our own founding fathers started to do that. So, And that's where political parties developed, and that's how we invented not only the presidency, but the political parties aspects of it. A lot of things we invented but they all changed over time. So, our original understanding of democracy was not a mob rule, but 
by all means, stop the mob rule. <laughs> Don't let the mob anywhere near this government, except in this house and only then. And just to protect extra, the house could be elected every two years, but the Senate, only one-third of it could be elected every two years. So you had to stagger it. So if by chance the mob did take control of the house, you'd have two-thirds of the Senate still there from before. So if a mass wave of interest swept the country, you still have an appointed Senate that had been there for prior to that. Stability was what they were looking for. So do you get the idea that we have a very, very different worldview coming out of the Founding Fathers of what democracy is all about than what we have today? Now we have a an electoral college that's more of a rubber stamp until 2004, <laughs> 2000, until the 2000 election. They were more of a rubber stamp than anything else. But the the electoral college is, has certainly played less of a role in recent times. And we think of the president more as a someone who's directly elected, even though technically it does go through the electoral college. So. To get back at all of this, what this all means is that we have ways of thinking about things that may not, in fact, be the reality. We promote democracy elsewhere, such as what we've been doing in the, in, in the Middle East. But what was the Wittgensteinian intellectual map inside the brain of George Bush and Dick Cheney when they were saying, let's have elections all those places? What were they thinking? What's that? Uh, democratic elections would turn out so it would be more like America than exactly. they didn't think the radicals would be able to take control. They thought that when people voted, yeah, exactly, that when people voted it would be like people in Connecticut. It would be like America. Now, what happened when looters started to tear apart Baghdad during the fall of Saddam Hussein? What's that? What did Rumsfeld say? Go ahead. I thought he just said it would eventually die down. No, he said something different. He did say it would eventually die down, but what what else did he say? That was crucial. People saying, but people are looting. What did Rumsfeld say? Actually, that's he said it was a natural ex- a way of people expressing their freedom. As democracy happens, don't worry about it. It's okay. Did you get the idea? He said, well, people sort of expressed their stuff. What's that? Good old Donald. Good old Donald. You can actually see, though, he had a different worldview. He had a mental map in his own mind that wasn't corresponding with the reality over in Iraq. So when we had elections throughout the Middle East and pushing, pushing, pushing elections, and suddenly we have a radicalized, democratically elected Middle East, what you can see is that the thoughts that our leaders had were not matching up with the reality elsewhere. Well, Ursula Le Guin is actually saying that in a general way about all of us, about human society, that we all work with our own internal maps, our own internal understandings of what is right and what is wrong, that we all live metaphors. Now, let's reread this last paragraph. If I could have said it non-metaphorically, meaning the stuff that she writes about in the novel, I would not have written all these words, this novel. If she could have spoken non-metaphorically, if she could have spoken the direct truth, she wouldn't have actually written the novel. And Jen Lee I, the character in the novel, of course, 
would never have sat down at my desk as if he actually was a physical person and used up my ink and typewriter ribbon in informing me and you rather solemnly that the truth is a matter of the imagination. What is she saying now? Think of it in terms of Husserl, in terms of Wittgenstein, in terms of what we just said with regard to internal maps. I mean, the truth is never what it started out being. It's filters through your mind. and Whatever comes out is not intent, maybe what the exact truth was. Like, even in the beginning of the book, she talks about, like, even a fact is not a fact unless it's properly spoken or well said. Mm-hmm. I mean, one person can say it and you won't believe it, but somebody else tells you, then you might just, you mm-hmm. won't have any doubt. But that goes another way, like with people's thinking of credibility. Maybe it's like every person has their own mental map, but when you move to metaphors, metaphors sort of are blanket. So it like, your me- it doesn't matter that your mental map is different than my mental map is different than someone else's mental map because metaphors sort of bridge the gap. A metaphor can symbolize something no matter what our original mental perception of it was. That's interesting. It can bridge the gap in a way. Now, what does she mean by this sentence, if I could have said it non-metaphorically, I would not have written all these words? She could have just written the plain truth that she wouldn't need to write a novel, but... Well, what does she mean by if I could have? The, the point of the novel is to like give people the... Um, mental, show them the mental math that she's using in describing this form, this novel, even. Okay. Like ideas in this, because people have different like, ideas, basic precepts. And so, if they even had the same idea, then she wouldn't need to, like put it out in such a roundabout form. She could put down what she thought and we'd all understand exactly how she meant it. But because we can't, she has to like explain it in metaphors in bit by bit, show us what she means. So she has to write it in love. Because we can't or because she can't? Both. What do you two think? Oh, I lost my voice. You lost your voice? Okay. I can't really talk. Go ahead. I don't, I don't really know. I'm just a little confused about what she's trying to... That's a great statement. To be able to say you just can't figure it out, that's a great statement. Honestly, mm-hmm. that's... I'm going to You'll squeak it out and I'll repeat it, so... Um, it kind of sounds like she's saying that there's no real truth. There's no real truth. That's good. <coughs> You see the words, if I could have said it non-metaphorically, it's not possible to speak it non-metaphorically. Meaning, it is not possible to speak a blatant truth. She's basically stating what Wittgenstein said, and what Husserl said. You can't get at the original meaning of it. You have to actually, actually, Husserl actually gives a, a, a way, phenomenological reduction, to actually approach an understanding of original meaning. But, Wittgenstein, I think, would be much more critical of that. He would say it's almost impossible, if not completely impossible, to get at the original meaning. So it is impossible, not from from Le Guin's perspective, to actually put across this view in an absolute blatant 
factual method. That means what? with respect to all of our factual discussions. So they don't really apply, because there's no way to... There's no way to boil down what's fact... There's no way to boil down, like, the metaphors in this novel to a factual understanding, to, like, a fact... Well, what about all of our factual discussions of other things, when she says... She, remember, she's talking about science fiction here. I have to disagree with what she says, then, because... She talks about how precepts are given in science and culture. But in science, like we have nowadays, everyone's taught the same thing, so we have a common set of precepts. Everybody is on this more or less in the same way there. So when somebody says something, you understand what they mean by that. Yeah. That's like the huge numbers of journals and everything out there exist because people are able to share their thoughts in an efficient way because of the like, common understanding. So by that, her argument that there is no way you can actually say a blatant truth is like, it doesn't apply across the board. It may apply when it comes like political philosophy, but then any philosophy is a touch and go like everyone has a different view subject as it is. And there'll, there'll be an interpretation to everything. I think essentially that's what she's saying, that there is no reality. There is no way to describe reality. There is not, it is not possible to describe reality in a factual way. You can only talk metaphorically. And thus, when she says in the last statement, truth is a matter of the imagination, it means that all of our understandings of truth and all things are just imaginative. We imagine everything around us. We imagine the order of our society. And we behave, actually this goes back to democratic theory. One of the great thoughts of Robert Dahl, a Yale political scientist, one of his very greatest thoughts was that we function democratically not because of a constitution. It doesn't really matter that we have a constitution. Britain has no constitution, yet it functions quite adequately without any constitution. We function because we have a patterned set of behaviors that we follow automatically. And the Constitution basically codifies the rules that we follow automatically. And what happens when you have new elections in other places? Well, the Constitution doesn't matter a whit. The rules were never established informally. There are no patterned sets of behavior and so everything boils down to the, the mosque, which can be quite radicalized. There isn't any other pattern says or behavior. There's no functioning bureaucracy. There's no functioning institutions that are, better, that are heterogeneous. There's no functioning and very diverse economic culture that's going on. In a different way, um, Machiavelli kind of addressed that, um, just, you know, in terms of taking over another country. Um, that, you know, if the people were used to the same form of government as you're bringing in, then it'll be an easy transition. That they'll, they'll fall right into the, the pathways of, of your government, and it'll be really simple. And he said, you know, if they have a different form of government, then there'll be a lot of killing. You're going to have to kill a lot of people, a lot of people who organize that government. There'll be a lot of bloodshed, and you better make it quick and get it done, but you're going to have to do it because those people aren't going to want to move into this new pattern of rulership. That's a very interesting point. 
And so I, mean, I think it's kind of the same thing. You know, we have this pattern of government that we're so used to, and then you're trying to take <laughs> democracy and apply it to what was a tyranny. And then, again, in Iraq, for instance, you're trying to apply it to what was a tyranny or a dictatorship, and you're you're expecting them to just suddenly, you know, adopt democracy. And I think Machiavelli was really astute. You know, I don't recommend that we go kill a bunch of people, but, I mean, it was like, you know, the radical factions are still there. We didn't get rid of the radical clerics. We didn't get rid of the people who thought that the dictatorship was a good idea because it put them in power. And so... You know, those people are still there keeping that country from moving into democracy. Hmm. Or actually, they are moving into democracy that's highly radicalized. <laughs> it's their version of democracy, which is certainly not what we play in hometown, in hometown Connecticut. Well, then let's move this into the plot of Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. We have an androgynous society. She's clearly saying that our understanding of reality isn't so real in the first place and that her understanding of reality as portrayed in the left hand of darkness is, a, is one equal interpretation to what we already thought. So what is she saying about our, about our reality? What about an androgynous world? Why should she bring up an androgynous world? Why should this be the premise of this novel? What does it stand for? Are we really talking about androgyny? What does it stand for? Now, we could think in terms of gender differences that we have, big issues of same-sex marriages and all those types of stuff. Is that what she's really talking about? I just looked at when this book was published. It was published in 1969, and Mm -hmm. that wasn't quite such a big idea in 1969. Good point to make. Good, very good point to make. That wasn't same-sex marriages weren't so big in 1969. I mean, they did have the women's liberation movement was going on at that time, but that wasn't the same issues that we were dealing with today. Maybe it's just so the monotony. So then what is she talking about? Life. Go ahead. Maybe it's about monotony. I mean, you know... About what? Monotony. I mean, or not monotony, but like, maybe it's about the sameness of, you know, people in society. I know that, you know, a lot of people tend to think that, you know, working in a, in a business environment or, or, you know, working in our modern society tends to remove individuality. And, you know, maybe it's speaking to that. Maybe it's, you know, our individual differences are, you know, sort of wiped away in this novel. Individual differences are being wiped away in the novel. Okay, that's a possibility. What else? Why bring up an androgynous society? What is she talking about? If it's a metaphor, then what is it supposed to be metaphorical about and what's the role of Jen Liai the person who's walking around this Can you give us like, a view of this society from a human point of view what a, what human point of view? From a non-endogenous person's point of view, even like he's a Terran, like a single-sex guy. Single-sex heterosexual type. So like he's coming here. This society seems very strange, to me. and so like his like part of what he does is 
his explorations of like his um, his gradual understanding of the society and everything mm-hmm. allows us to gain a better understanding of it and to see it from like the point of view that we would see it if we went there. Rather than if she just like described the society, it wouldn't be the same as seeing how somebody who we can relate to would like act in the society. How interesting. So we are seeing her world from the perspective of Jan the I, who's more like us. A single sex person. And we're using that perspective to see this this differentness. Okay. Alright, that's that's good. So we have to be able to we have to be able to enter this metaphor. So Jan the I is our way to enter the metaphor. To see through Jan the I's eyes. Alright, that's good. We now have someone to see through someone that we can relate to because can we really relate to an androgynous set of beings it's hard because they're so different so what is she then talking about she then obviously she wants us to be able to learn through the eyes of Jen Lai. what is she wanting us to learn what is she wanting us to see what is she wanting us to confront is she wanting us to confront our sexuality is that what this book is about She doesn't address it in a direct enough way for it to be about sexuality. Yeah, it's not directly addressed in that way. What is she addressing then? Obviously, it's a metaphor. Or she claims point blank. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for something you don't understand. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know what specifically she's talking about, but I don't know, like in a broader sense, generally I is like the person you can relate to. He's the person you understand. He's this man, right? And then there's this whole society that's completely different. And it's, it's just about, or I mean, I, I in a broader sense, it's about this person who's faced with a society that's different, and he's trying to understand it. All right. We have a lot of things going on here. He's, we're he facing a different society that makes no sense. What does it mean when it makes no sense? Now, think of the Wittgensteinian concept. You're down there. You can't get a more weird world than an entire population of androgynous beings because we really define ourselves very much in terms of sexual terms. I am a man. You are a woman. Whatever. We really define ourselves. And the first thing you just you say when you wake up in the morning is you say to yourself who you are. And, and one's gender is really an establishment of who you are. It's a personality trait that is fundamental in everything we do. So... Here we have an androgynous society. It's weird. It's totally different. And there was a line there about that. And I, some, somewhere in there it says, you know, uh, generally I says, well, you know, the first thing we do, or maybe it was in the introduction, the first thing that we do when we see a baby is, you know, is it a male or a female? Is it a male or female? That's right. But what do we do when we see a, an androgynous society? What happens? You confuse. I mean, I, yeah, so how it's identity in. How we identify them. It doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore. And what would Wittgenstein say about it? That you just need that you need to work back in your mental map until you get to a better understanding from a fundamental perception. Actually I think Wittgenstein would say something different. Is there a map at all? No. Meaning do we have an understanding on this planet no. as single sex beings? Do we have a map leading to an androgynous understanding of anything? 
So it's not going back to the original meaning because there's no original meaning. We don't have it at all. So what this androgynous view is, this androgynous society is, it's it's her way of saying you're going into a realm of differentness that has no mental map to your original meaning. You cannot use phenomenological reduction, as Husserl would have said, to get back to an original perception or original meaning. You can't find the Wittgensteinian map to understand reality. It's like you're running into something and you're running into a stone wall. There is no way you can go forward. So what do we do with Jen Liai, the character that is representing the ecumen of known worlds, the, all those 80 or some odd planets out there, that has come down and wants to represent those planets in order to get commerce and other things going. What do we do seeing through Jen Liai's views? We are able to create, for the first time, an original what? From a Wittgensteinian perspective. An original map. We are creating, in Ursula Le Guin's perspective, our first map. It's a brand new thing. And it's very hard, even in science fiction, to come up with any subject that all of your readers will run flat into and say, I have no map to interpret that. I have nowhere to go. So what does she do when she has a brand new subject with a brand new world and a brand new understanding that fundamentally confronts everything that we know about ourselves, which is our, our gender? She is saying, you're going from square one. There's no map. You're not taking any baggage with you. Everything from now on is from me. It's very powerful. But still, like, even while reading the book, we have a tendency to just use our old map. Like, when we, when he's, when we were like, when he's talking to some character, we assume he's a man. He talks to another man. But he mentions himself that, oh, he, he was almost indecisive like a woman was or something. Like, you know. You not forget, quite a man, not quite a woman. Like you forget that, because but when you're reading, you're you're not thinking about he's talking to some alien who's a man and a woman who has ideas of both. You're like, oh, he's talking to the king. He's talking to a man. Mm-hmm. Just I just which is interesting. If it was a society where there is no male or female, how come there's a king, which symbolizes how a male? A That's a good point. I mean, how come it wasn't a queen or? I mean, why is it why is it a king? I, it's, it kind of. I know exactly what you mean. You know what I mean? Like reading the beginning of it, like in that first scene where they're in the parade, like Tybe, I just pictured him as this like skinny, Weasley sort of you know pockmarked, greasy guy, and then Estraven was like this big guy who looked like um, oh the Godfather. Yeah, yeah. Looked like the Godfather, you know, and he had on this big robe. And did you see Robin Hood Men in Tights? Oh yeah. Well, it, he looked like the 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 Don. Yeah. And, and, you know, he had this, this big, you know, robe thing on this giant chain, and he was just, you know, the, and, and but you can't help picture these people as men or, or women, you know, where it applies. And you just kind of feel like, I mean, it's so hard when he all of a sudden he's like, oh, and by the way, this person was sort of like a he, she, it sort of thing. Yeah. And then you're just kind of like, whoa, because in your head. And then the other problem was that the Gaum, I think, who was the guy from the Sarf later on, he, he says, well, he was really attractive, but he was really feminine, and he was sort of man and sort of woman, but he looked sort of in the middle. And I just had this incredibly hard time picturing that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it makes it really, not difficult, but I mean, kind of interesting to think through the novel and picture characters, because, you know, I like have mental pictures of mm-hmm. what's going on, and 
Some of my characters are a little strange right now. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, you know, if this does represent differentness and we're supposed to enter the realm with with, with no map, so we're creating our very first map together as readers as we march into it, what is she actually talking about? What is she actually telling us about 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 society? Now let's let's look at it from the perspective of a new world, a newly discovered world. It's a metaphor. So is she really talking about an out there world? She's talking about us. Remember, it's reflective, it's descriptive. Science fiction is descriptive from her point of view. So this new world has some relationship, some metaphorical relationship to us. Now she's trying to get at us in a different way by circumventing all of our internal maps, our Wittgensteinian maps, that we already have. So by using the gender androgynous concept, she's helping us discard our maps and to enter a new realm where we look, where we re-examine ourselves in a different way. Does that mean that everything that she brings up is different from us? Let's look at a couple things. Let's look at some political stuff. Let's look at page 19. And this is in chapter 1, after the parade. Okay, and um, this is where, again, the eye is talking with uh, 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 Estravan. Now, let me ask you this, Mr. I. Do you know, by your own experience, what patriotism is? No, I said taken by the force of that intense personality suddenly turning itself wholly upon me? I don't think I do. If by patriotism you don't mean the love of one's homeland, for that I do know. Now what does Jen I say, love of one's homeland? If you look up patriotism in the dictionary, any dictionary, Funk and Wagnalls, Webster's, whatever, you'll find it's that concept of defense of one homeland, defense of one's homeland, or love of one's homeland. So clearly, Jen Liai is relating to us. That's one of his accents. Ursula Le Guin is helping us access one of our own maps right now. So through Jen Liai, we're bringing in our own maps. And then Estrevan is then being used as a character to confront that map. No, I don't mean love when I said patriotism. When I say patriotism, I mean fear, the fear of the other. Now, that's normally not what we think about when we think about patriotism. But is there a real meaning behind it that she's really trying to say? Do we have fear when we're dealing with patriotism? We normally don't think of that. We think of love of one's homeland, defense of one's homeland. That's really strange, though. Because like, when you think of patriotism, you think a lot of like you know defending your homeland against you know foreign invaders, and then maybe it's not love of your country, but fear of someone changing your way of life. Yeah, but fear... In, in this perspective is a new element a new way to look at patriotism and its expressions are political not poetical hate rivalry aggression it grows in us that fear it grows in us year by year we've followed our road too far and you who come from a world that outgrew nations centuries ago who hardly know what I'm talking about who show us the new road he broke off after a while he went on in control again cool and polite It's because of fear that I refuse to urge your cause with the king now. But not fear for myself, Mr. I. I am not acting patriotically. 
There are, after all, other nations on Gethin. Fear. Fear. You know, when we think about our nation, we often think in terms of pride and love and happiness and so on like that. Do we suppress fear? Are we really afraid of our leaders, afraid of our nation, afraid of the sanctions that could be placed upon us if we expressed ourselves differently? How about let's go to the king. Let's, just, let's take a look at him with regard to fear. Let's go to page 40. And this is in chapter 3, The Mad King. And here Jen the Eye is talking to the king. The ecumen will, of course, an ecumen, and we're talking about the known worlds. We'll wait till you open it, sir, meaning a door to have an open discussion between the known worlds and Gethin. It will force nothing on you. I was sent alone and remain here alone in order to make it impossible for you to fear me. Now, that's the internal map that we would automatically say, right? Taking away fear, making it obvious there's no fear here, standing alone. What does the king do to that, to turn that head on its tails? Fear you, said the king, turning his shadow-scarred face, grinning, speaking loud and high. But I do fear you, envoy. I fear those who sent you. I fear liars, and I fear tricksters. And worst, I fear the bitter truth. And so I rule my country well, because only fear rules men. Nothing else works. Nothing else lasts long enough. You are what you say you are, yet you're a joke, a hoax. There's nothing in between the stars but void and terror and darkness. And you come out of that all alone trying to frighten me. But I am already afraid. I am the king. Fear is king. Now I take your traps and now take your traps and go and take your traps and tricks and go. There is no more need saying, I have ordered that you be given freedom of carhide. Fear. That's a really powerful statement. What is he talking about? And how does that correspond with what Estraven was saying earlier? It's, I mean, it's kind of like back to Machiavelli, you know. Fear people who give you advice. Fear people who tell you what to do. Like it's like you'll be a better king if you, you know, fear the attack may come at any moment, and then you'll understand that and you'll defend yourself from it. I mean, Machiavelli was big on the power of fear on a ruler to keep them in line, or to, or to make them better ruler. You're raising some really good points. Let's use some new language. Let's use the word sanctions. Let's think of how we tried to coerce Saddam Hussein, Iraq, to do what we wanted to do before mm. the big invasion. What did we use? And what are they talking about now with respect to Iran to try to use? Perhaps shipping it out to the United Nations, to the Security Council, to impose sanctions. sanctions. What is all this sanctions issue. And what happens if you go speeding down the highway and your police officer sees you? You get a ticket. What's that? You get a ticket. A ticket. And what is a ticket? 
Sanctions. What happens if you don't do your homework, don't hand in your papers? What happens? Sanctions. What happens if you say a bad thing and a surveillance telephone intercept in the carnivore system that the defense intelligence agency runs, that the Pentagon runs, it picks up all of the, called the carnivore system, picks up millions and millions of phone calls and you say something bad, a joke perhaps. And then suddenly you find yourself with someone knocking at your door, investigating you, finding out that, you know, what is it all about you? Why do you want to avoid saying stupid jokes that could be misinterpreted over the phone? Because of sanctions. sanctions, the possibility of sanctions. Why should you defend your nation? Why should you have a bumper sticker that would really say, I love America no matter what, and I'm defending it and all this? Because what would happen if you didn't do that? What would happen if you said the opposite? You could fear sanctions. What is patriotism then? Is it really the love of one's country? You see how deep Ursula Le Guin's getting? This is kind of like with religion a little bit too. Like, you know, they always say, how many people pray to God because they love God? How many people pray to God because they fear God? You know, you're raising a great point. You know, sometimes great teachers pay with their lives. What was the only thing Jesus really said? I mean, when it boils down to fast tax, what's the only really thing he said? You had a Jewish religion that was fundamentally based on God being an angry God. If you didn't do things right and follow commandments, I will punish you. What's the only thing he really said? God loves you. What's that? God loves you. God is a benevolent God. Yeah. That love is the key, not anger. Exactly. Paid for it with his life. That, That was not a big deal. Don't hate people, don't get angry, just love people, forgive (laughs) What's the big deal? Paid for it with his life. But you see, that went against the common way of thinking. So you raise a very good point. I mean, a lot of people who... I mean, they they always say that the first person who comes up with a new idea is going to be shunned. I mean, like those people who came up with cold fusion. I mean... Immediately, the media circuit started around them. You know, they were they were the I mean, they were laughing. I mean, not really a laughing stock. I mean, people were like, "Are you serious? This can't be true." You know, people don't believe it. And then all throughout history, people. I mean, Galileo. Uh, you know, house arrest for you know saying that you know he went against the church. I mean, you know, Socrates poison. Socrates poison. I mean, and what did Socrates do? He just stood around the marketplace. What they were doing instead of just doing it. Yeah, he asked people questions, asked them to think. <laughs> now, what we're talking about now is norms, the norms of society. So is patriotism, what Ursula Le Guin is saying, is patriotism really an honest, deeply felt love of society? Or is it really a lie? And the underlying patriotism is a fear of sanctions, and that you profess love of country love of homeland and defense of the homeland because you want to avoid sanctions. You want to be independent. Because look at the natural way people think. Just like Hussein was, re- was mentioning, others were mentioning, 
When you come up with a new idea that simply goes against the already existing intellectual template, hey, God's a happy God. <laughs> Try loving. When you come up with the idea of saying, hey, you're here at the marketplace, good, let me ask you some questions. When you come up with a new thing, a new way of thinking, sanctions. Sanctions is the real thing. And it's fear that drives patriotism. That's what Ursula Gwynn is asking. And really, if you think about that, you won't find that in Webster's. You won't find that in any dictionary. But how much of a fear concept is actually involved in it? It's an interesting thing. Now, let's test it. What would happen if you went back Norms of behavior are very powerful. They, sociologists have studied this to the ends, especially with gangs, inner city gangs. They go in and they look at the gangs and they say, how do you get such conformity that you can get the gangs to do anything? I mean, they can do really weird things. And if you deviate, there's this new gang, really violent, coming out of uh, Central America, El Salvador and others, aliens coming into the United States, M13, hear of that? really a violent gang really and they, they were really brutally violent and it turns out that when they were growing up as youngsters really small kids they saw a lot of atrocities in the guerrilla warfare in the jungles and in the urban areas and they got dehumanized desensitized to seeing these things now they're big people and they don't cringe when they have somebody being tortured we have a, we have a couple of gangs like that in Atlanta and I know that I'm part of, you know, part of their initiation. I have a friend who lives down by Phipps, and part of their initiation was that they shot a businessman coming across the bridge over 400. Four of them came out there and shot him, and why it turned out that one of the kid, one of the people who was there, like four guys there, when the guy, when the other man was shot, and um, one of the four guys was like really young. Anyway, you know, as part of his, you know, initiation, uh, it was either the Bloods or the Crips, and I don't remember which. And part of his initiation was. You gotta come watch this. You gotta come watch this because one day you're gonna have to be initiated too. That's true of any gang. Like I'm from a small town. One of my really good friends was shot while he was jogging in his neighborhood for gang initiation. That's not just a big city. Though. Yeah. These norms of behavior—they can get you to do anything. These coercive norms, and what happens is, in gangs or in fraternities or sororities, I, I I'm on the Alcohol Judicial Council. You have no idea how many students come before us that were near death. And they got resuscitated in the emergency room. And we say, why did you drink that? And they say, well, I had 13 shots. 13 shots. How did you drink? Why did you drink that? And you say, well, there's peer pressure. Everybody's doing it. It starts on Thursday and then Friday and Saturday. If you don't do it, you don't have friends. And there's everybody's, you just have to go along. Peer pressure. And this is happening in all college campuses, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, this peer pressure towards, and everybody's drinking these shots. So a lot of them are drinking shots because they don't want the calories because everybody's on a diet these days. <laughs> so they drink straight shots. <laughs> and I mean, it's like, drunk, it's like, I mean, it's incredible. And, I talk, and I, you're talking to someone like myself who hasn't had a beer in 20 some odd years and I just don't drink anything. I don't even drink tea or coffee because of the psychotropic effects of it. I, I think of chamomile tea as equivalent to crack cocaine. I, mean, I just don't think <laughs> of anything. And, but, and then they're coming in front of me and saying, you took 13 shots. 13 shots? I That's death. I mean, you can die. I mean, that is yeah, really... Yeah, 0.26. That's really close to... You're in comas and stuff like that. So the point is, but the norms of behavior are very strong. Now, um, 
when we think of the norms of behavior, let's think in terms of yourselves. You're all freshmen, so I understand you're all in the dormitories. Is that right? Mm-hmm. What would happen if you went back into the dormitories and did something stupid, really goofy, and actually made it seem like that was who you are, wanted to do it? You just have to think about it. Um, a twitch, walking back. What if you started jogging backwards? Would you'd be shunned, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. All of your friends when when they, for example, I actually heard. Uh, actually, I was I was taking karate at one point. I had a white belt. Something had to hold up my pants. So I I, I wanted to start to improve my kicking. So I said, what I would do is. I would start jogging backwards because if you jog forward, you're always moving the legs in one direction. I have to kick. I have to kick in the opposite direction, so I better start jogging backwards. I just thought of that, and for a while there, I was jogging backwards. Actually, I still to this day jog backwards for a little while, and when I jog forwards for a long while, I take about a mile and go backwards. But I remember, um, I do a lot of things different than a lot of other people, and I remember my chair, Tom Remington, is he was walking his child uh, at low water the lake near the president's house and I didn't see him coming because I was jogging backwards (laughs) and then suddenly I heard a voice say huh jogging backwards and I looked and you know I saw him pass then I found out later that they had a discussion in the faculty lunch when everyone was having around and they said oh by the way we saw Courtney jogging the other day and he was jogging backwards and then Karen O'Connor, who is a political scientist that used to work here, she thought it was interesting afterwards when she realized that nobody thought that was odd, talking about Courtney. <laughs> they just said, okay, he's jogging backwards. Everybody else jogs forward, but Courtney jogs backwards. So the point is, when you do something unusual long enough, people say, that person just does not compute. That person doesn't isn't normal. But what if you do things normally with the pack for a long time and then you deviate? What kind of reaction do you get? What if you did something weird? At your, just think of something, you, something different. I mean, and do it in your dorms. You, what kind of reaction? Well, just on like a on a even larger scale. I mean, you have a lot of people who you know have really normal upbringings and normal whatever, and they get into the business world and they commit you know white collar crimes. Mm-hmm. And you know, these are people who just work completely normal their whole lives. The normal, yeah, but the and, and there's there are like whole like divisions of criminal psychologists who you know study like why did these people do this? Like you know these were normal people their yep. whole lives. Yeah, and that's a good point. But look, we've run out of time. But let me leave you with this: we want to finish the novel <coughs> by Tuesday, and we'll get into the rest of the plot. But now we have an understanding that she's talking metaphorically, and she's talking about the androgynous thing largely because she wants us to enter a new world where we can reevaluate everything all of politics completely fresh and by entering a new world you're talking about something totally different we have to re-examine our very basic understanding of everything so when we finish the novel on Tuesday let's ask what is she actually telling us about our society and politics and we can already see with the concept of patriotism that she's redefining everything Patriotism now is something that is totally alien to our normal map of the word patriotism. Our normal Wittgensteinian map is something totally different. Well, let's look at the rest of her novel with respect to what is the rest of the differentness she's saying that's about us. Okay, great. Look, I'll see you all on Tuesday. Have a good weekend and make sure the book's finished by then, okay? All right. Okay.